Welcome to the Nerd Review. This is the show where we talk about movies, TV shows, video games, books, and comic books. Today you're listening to episode 3, and today's episode is about D&D, Dungeons and Dragons. This is a special episode. We have our first guest joining us, a fellow nerd, Cameron. He's a great friend of mine who has a great history with D&D. He's the amazing DM, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that, it's Dungeon Master. He leads our D&D games. Uh, If you're not familiar with D&D, stay tuned. That's about to change. Uh, He leads our games with amazing narrative skills and a background that spans most of his life having the opportunity to grow up with D&D and get in on the ground floor of such an influential game that is now so popular. Uh, so let's jump into our first conversation with nerds. All right, so preamble for D&D. Uh, D&D was created in 1974. It's been 45 years since D&D was created. Uh, Gary Gainax, Dave Arnson, um, at TSR. I, I, I forgot what the initials stand for. Um, it's heavily inspired by Lord of the Rings, uh, enough to warrant lawsuits that we can get into uh, further on. And I mean, D&D is at this point in time, almost everybody knows what D&D stands for, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's been in, you know, Stranger Things is basically about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Prime has uh, Vox Machina, which is an actual D&D series, an animated D&D series. There's, you know, Critical Role, um, comic books, you know, D&D has become so popular. And if we go back to 1974 and we start at the beginning, it was not as accepted as it is today. And um, we have uh, today with us, we have Cam, uh, who has been, you know, playing D&D most of your most of your life. Cam, when did you start uh, playing D&D? And if you want to do a little introduction, uh, you can go ahead and do that. Yeah, so D&D for me, um, uh, I guess I started, I was really young. I was young enough that I don't really remember, uh, to be perfectly frank. I remember it was sometime in the in the late 80s. It was, I guess, advanced d I don't think it was second edition. And I had a friend who lived down the street who had an older brother, which I think is, is pretty um, common for those times that D&D was spread by word of mouth. He had an older brother who maybe was five years older than us. And he was into all of the cool stuff at the time. He was one of these early adopters of, I mean, it wasn't really the internet at the time, um, but of this sort of Usenet gaming groups, things like this. So we always looked up to him. He was always, you know, at the forefront of any any geeky, cool thing of the 80s. And so he introduced us to the game. I think that we would go and sneak into his room and uh, take a look at all of his books and just sort of flip through them. And as we got a little bit older, I was probably around eight or nine. Uh, he volunteered to run us through uh, our first game. So that was my first introduction to it. Uh, you know, as, as a little kid, you see these posters and you see this stuff. At the time, D&D didn't really have any kind of media presence, except for maybe the Saturday morning cartoon. I'm not sure when that started. Um I, I don't remember ever watching it as a kid, but whether you watch it or not, you sort of just know about these things. And uh, and it was sort of this sort of background geek culture was, was the concept of these RPG role-playing games. So 
that's how I was introduced to it, at least conceptually. I don't remember the game that we actually played. We probably just ran some sort of dungeon. Um, but the, yeah, that's how that's how I was first introduced to it. And like I said, I think that was pretty common of the time. D&D &D was spread a lot just by word of mouth. And so everyone knew some you know older cousin or older brother or friend of a friend who played it and um, and introduced it to them. And really, that was the way that most people were were brought into that kind of RPG circle. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a lot the same for me, um, except that by the time I was interested in playing D and D, it was in mainstream media. Probably the first uh, D and D related thing that I saw was actually an episode of The Big Bang Theory. Um, so 2007, 2008, it's in season one or two. And now it's now it's part of like pop culture and mainstream media. People are watching The Big Bang Theory and now everybody's looking up D&D &D and we were talking about it um, at school. We started looking into what D&D &D was about. Um, I had actually struggled to find a group. This is before online um, you know, capabilities of Roll20 or um, all of these amazing D&D Beyond websites and, and meetup groups. So I did a lot of one-shots or stuff on, on my own. I looked up the old text-based games to get this, you know, adventuring sense of what it's like to do, uh, you know, RPG in this, you know, text-driven uh, medium because having video games and, you know, uh, I think it was you that referred to, you know, Skyrim as, you know, D&D um, &D Lite or D&D &D Inspired. And they have all, all these elements, you know, baked in um, that if you look back and in the grand scheme of things are actually from D&D. Uh, and then even further back from Lord of the Rings, it's really interesting, um, that history. The D&D &D animated series that you mentioned, it had three seasons, and I, I too don't remember when it aired. It was sometime in the 80s, though. Yeah, it was It was, <laughs> It was. was in the late 80s, I'm, I'm pretty sure, maybe 86, 87. And I downloaded it um, recently, well, recently, maybe five years ago. And it's unwatchably bad uh, <laughs> as far as cartoons at that time. I'm sure that some people enjoy it, uh, probably just through nostalgic glasses, but it's pretty bad. And it was it was a little bit strange because if you go back to the history of D&D, &D, it wasn't a kid's property. I'm not sure when they started more targeting towards kids. I feel like maybe second edition had a little bit of a, a lower entry curve. But if you look back to the history of D&D, &D, especially the early days, where it was built upon, um, it was building upon tactical war games. I mean, tactical war games are really an adult hobby. I don't think if you go to a tactical war game convention, uh, I'm not talking about Warhammer or any fantasy games because those didn't exist at the time. But if you go to a, you know, a Napoleonic or Civil War tactical convention, you're not going to find anyone under the age of 60. You know, right. this isn't a young person's hobby. And so that's where D&D &D derived from, was from these uh, tactical war games. Uh, maybe you'll go into the, the history a little bit more. But so throughout the 70s and into the 80s, it wasn't it wasn't kids. It wasn't 10 year olds playing. And, and nowadays people have a, sort of a concept that it's a kid's game. You know, you, you mentioned pop culture. Um, Things like Stranger Things, for instance, it shows a lot of young kids playing it. But in the 80s, that was not necessarily their target demographic. Their target demographic was more 
um, you know, late teens, uh, like mid to late teens, early adults, those were the ones who initially played the game. And then, you know, them showing their younger brothers and maybe sisters um, the the game, <clears throat> it sort of transitioned to a younger crowd. And, and that's why sort of that original edition and then advanced D&D, what it kind of fed into second edition, second edition was a little bit more simple to play. And I think that that's when it started getting um, kids more involved. So I think that this, the, the cartoon was sort of aimed at that demographic, because when you watch the cartoon, of course, if you don't know the synopsis, you know, it's a bunch of grade school kids that get sort of sucked into the world of D&D and they're, right. and they're, they're kind of given classes and, and, and there's some sort of, I think they even call him the, the dungeon master, or the game master. There's this like old wizard who sort of sends them on their quests and stuff. So it's almost like a literal translation of D&D into a cartoon um, almost like a, a prehistoric, like LARP concept. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's funny <laughs> you know, before when you mentioned that synopsis of the animated series, the first thing that popped into my mind was the most recent Jumanji movie. Um, so it's funny how these things are, you don't realize that they're basically just, you know, riffing or, or taking from what D&D or this property has done previously. And that is basically the entire plot of the new uh, Jumanji movies is is that these characters, you know, these people get sucked into the video game and they're given the classes of the video game. Um, just in this case, D and D was a tabletop game. Yeah, I never made that connection, but yeah, it's you know all all ideas get recycled, right? Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure the D and D cartoon is is sort of um, vague enough that it could be applied um, to a lot of different properties. Yeah, like yeah, uh, this idea of, of kids sort of this idea of kids sort of rising to the occasion and, and be giving sort of powers, uh, magical or, or strength or whatever their powers are. I mean, it's a fun concept for kids, and it, it, and it, it, it it's sort of like empowering. Mm-hmm. You see it a lot, like that. That you're right. That concept is is in a lot of uh, you know entertainment for kids and a lot of movies. Um, you know, you get. You know, a portal opens, or you find an object that imbues you with power, and now you have this this quest that has perils, and you see that a lot in different uh, different media, different not even just for kids. I mean, that's that's the basis of fantasy for even adults. The idea of being given, you know, this destiny that you know makes you rise above is appealing to anyone, really. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of the whole point of or the, the whole appeal of RPG, pen and paper RPGs in general, is that you're assuming a role. Mm. You know, you're assuming a, a, an identity. And, you know, you have these, you have these um, events like the, the Satanic Panic in the 80s. And, and people, you know, they thought that their kids were, were literally worship, worshipping the devil because they had um, whatever, a sorcerer class in D&D and they would hear them play these games and of course you know the kids are actively engaging in the game maybe talking in first person and their parents were concerned they thought that they were actually casting spells they just didn't understand the concept yeah um of an RPG because before D&D games were essentially just you know monopoly or trouble or or whatever you know um these these very sort of simple games simple rules they didn't have this this you know identity identity assuming 
play style where you're 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 taking on a role and then you're executing that role. And it's it's kind of funny because going back to my first experiences with D&D, my first experience was playing an actual dungeon. But after that I didn't really play D&D for a while. There was a lot of games in the market, things like Hero Quest, uh, which is at the time was a Games Workshop product. It was resold by someone, I don't know if it was Milton Bradley or someone like this, but it was a Games Workshop product. And this was sort of a, a gateway product and, you know, to get people into either Wargaming, like, you know, like Warhammer or one of these Games Workshop products or D&D. And I don't know if you're familiar with Hero Quest. They, they actually, I think Avalon Hill recently re-released it. Um, I'm not sure if it's Avalon Hill. I might just be plugging them. No, I'm not <laughs> but, familiar with it, but I will check it out. Yeah, so Hero Quest is it's essentially it's a board game and it's a dungeon crawl. So you play with a game master who does who isn't an active player. So you have that concept that's that's from D and D. They have this game master that has, you know, um, a screen and he has the rules of the dungeon and everyone assumes a character, right? And and it's a, they have the typical barbarian <clears throat> dwarf. You know, dwarf fighter, uh, a barbarian, human barbarian. There's an elf, wizard, and a half elf. I think it's 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 a a rogue or something like this. And everyone assumes these roles, and they just go through the dungeon. And it's very much like D D and D. It's very similar. And um, and yeah. So as a kid of the '80s, that was like one of the ultimate board games. It's the board game that everyone wanted. And it had all the little plastic miniatures. And the plastic miniatures were direct from, because it was a Games Workshop licensed product, they were direct from Warhammer Fantasy. So they were good quality minis. I still have some of them today. I don't have the board game anymore, but I still have some of the minis. And that's what I started playing. And if you think of that as a gateway, from there you want to do more. So what me and my friends would do actually is we would play you know, Hero Quest, we'd go through the whole module of the board game. And then we would look for something else to do. And at the time, we didn't have access to the D&D book. So we started actually just role playing the Hero Quest characters, as if it was D&D, using the Hero Quest, uh, Hero Quest rules, which of course, were very light, they're very rules light. Um, and that was sort of my gateway to more RPGing. And from there, we moved into Sort of simultaneously, we moved into both D&D with these starter boxes of uh, second edition, uh, which were probably released around that time. And also, like paralleling that, going into Warhammer Fantasy, mm -hmm. you know, and that's that's sort of where we, we, we went. And um, and so I was always sort of surfing that that wave of, of D&D into, into, you know, Hero Quest, Hero Quest into... Uh, into Warhammer or Hero Quest into D and D. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting um, how how the games they kind of gear themselves to you know leveling you up in in a sense of like if you if you play this first game you kind of understand the rules of you know a next game. Um, there's there's other games you know card based games like One Deck Dungeon and uh, Munchkins that are they have you know you know a, a deck of cards for items and they have a simplified you know character sheet that they provide um, and if you play that you know when you're younger if you play that a few times by the time somebody you know pulls out a D and D manual and they're like hey you want to sit down and play D and D you have this this concept you understand it which was the case for me having played uh, Skyrim. Or or even Fallout, all these games, you know, they they kind of make 
they kind of work it into the story to have a reason for you to fill out this like form and you have all these attributes that you have to pick out and if you look at them it's the same attributes that you have in D&D you're picking out your perception your agility your strength and you're designing the character you want to role play um, but for my generation and when I was younger it was much more geared towards all the video games and and playing the video games that have di- have basically taken the D&D concept uh, to the, the this new medium of you know video games <laughs> yeah of course it absolutely the the concept of leveling and the concept of attribute points and, and this sort of universal concept of creating a character this is all derived from D&D mm-hmm. and so I find it funny that they started out D&D started out as sort of this very heady um, complex uh, and a complex concept to even grasp, to even understand what the game was, because we didn't have, you know, the foundation of these these sort of um, computer games, RPGs. For, for a kid nowadays, it's a lot easier to understand the concept of D&D, because you could literally say, hey, you played, I don't know, Diablo, um, an action RPG. It, it's, it's essentially an action RPG dungeon crawl. You played Diablo. Now imagine if you're just doing that, but it's it's you're you know you're doing it theater of the mind or you're playing on an actual board. Yes. So people can take their their concepts of board games or video games that we have that are established, and then you're just taking that one step further. What's interesting is back in the seventies, you know, that didn't exist. None of that existed. So <laughs> I would love to have heard the initial pitch from you know Gary Gygax when he first developed the 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 rules for you know even before first edition when. The rules were just a supplement to um, to a, a game called Chainmail, which was a, a tactical, um, like a medieval tactical war game. I would have loved to hear his pitch of what it was um, uh, to try to explain the concepts of the game because it was so alien to them back then. Uh, it would have been really interesting. From the reading that I did, it was essentially a sales pitch to take the war tactical games and include medieval fantasy and the and basically the, this RP, this role playing um, expansion, basically expanding on those tactical games. Like if you were to put yourself in those you know tactical games instead of doing it from you're commanding a battalion or groups of men, your individual character and your actions are their actions and then it was to develop this more fantasy uh, fanciful side of the equation and you mentioned um, advanced and simple D&D um, which is interesting because in my reading the only reason those exist is because uh, Gary Gynax wanted to um, take away the royalties that um, I forgot the gentleman's name, Dave Arneson was getting from mm. the basic D&D. Um, he had left the company and he had only been there for uh, a short while and his contribution was D&D. And then when he left, they didn't want to continue paying him royalties. So they had, they designed D&D Advanced and said that you now he has nothing to do with D&D Advanced so that in the hope that people would just stop playing the original D&D. Uh, the, Speaking of lawsuits, there's there's many involved when you have a property this big. Uh, a lawsuit concluded that uh, D&D Advance still used D&D as a basis so that he still got royalties for both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting when you look at the sort of the history of it, just because there's a lot of 
obviously you have have a game that spans i guess it's almost 50 years now or it's more 45. than 50 years actually yeah well the first rules of DD, like as a supplement to chainmail was 1971 right, you believe. mentioned this chainmail game yeah okay yeah. so i mean chainmail it was just a fan it wasn't it wasn't it had no fantastical elements it was just um it was just a medieval war game Okay. And it's interesting when you look at it. I, I, I've read the history before. I have a book. I, I have it right in front of me. I took it out before we started talking. <clears throat> so it's called Of Dice of Men, of Dice and Men, uh, written by David M. Ewald. And it's it's sort of a just a history of D and D. And I've read it a couple of times. Um, I don't I don't really remember exactly um, uh, all the stuff they say about the early days. It's really interesting. So I, I definitely recommend it. But um, as you said, you know, they were trying to introduce fantasy elements into this chainmail game. I guess you have a bunch of people at these conventions and they're essentially sitting around going, hey, you know, we're playing this medieval game. You know, we have knights, we have men at arms, we have archers, whatever. Um, it would be really cool if, you know, uh, we had like a sorcerer or a magic user, these hero characters, you know, and I can't remember if there was collaboration or not, but it's interesting to see that both Warhammer which is a game that I've played most of my life, um, as well as D&D, which is also a game I've played most of my life. Um, they both come from this chainmail game, right? They're both derivatives of it, and they were both born of just supplements to that. Whereas, you know, D&D, what they did is they they said, hey, you know, it'd be cool if we had these hero magic users or, or, or exceptional characters, you know, like an Aragorn from Lord of the Rings or Gandalf. Um, but instead of just putting them in an army they're like we'll just play as these heroes and mm -hmm. essentially they just took the rules for combat and, and other mechanisms of chainmail and instead of each person controlling an army with a hero character it was just you're just controlling that hero you know and at first you were just fighting the other um sort of mobs from that chainmail game so you were a hero character not fighting other fantastical creatures you were just sort of fighting you know men at arms or whatever um and then they built on that introducing you know goblins or whatever the different of course the different creatures monsters that dnd has mm -hmm. and then on the flip side warhammer took that exact same idea saying hey it would be cool to have uh, magic users uh, but instead of pulling it back to this individual controlled unit it was just taking a fantasy or an army uh and then putting fantasy elements in those armies and and i can't remember like i said if there was collaboration between um, you know, the, the Gary Gygax, and I, I don't know who <clears throat> sort of uh, invented Warhammer, uh, but I feel like there was. Uh, I feel like I read that somewhere that they had met at a convention and exchanged notes, and then a couple of years later they met again, and they had both developed sort of their own games selling as supplements to Chainmail, but they had gone in completely different directions. Um, so yeah, this is, this is one of those things that um, it's hard to quantify. But it's interesting how you have two games derived, two huge properties derived from the same game as sort of a supplement rule. Yeah, and that goes that goes hand in hand with what I was saying too about you know they it all it all originates back from maybe maybe like you said it was a convention you know before the internet before you know you had millions of people involved and it was more niche and you had these individuals who were in the right place at the right time with the right resources 
and they were very creative very uh you know they want to they want to develop things they want to create they want to create things that are fun to play because that's what they're playing too. And they, they have ideas and maybe they did have that conversation at a convention and, you know, there's artists involved with, uh, you know, just creating these, these goblins and, and all these other creatures and they all sit down together. And then they, like you said, they go back and, you know, a convention is, you know, everybody's coming to this one place um, pre-internet pre, you know, super connectivity and then they go back to their respective houses, their respective jobs, and they get other people involved. And the collaboration sparks from that, you know, that one convention. And you see, you know, a few years later, maybe they, they got back together at a convention and was like, holy crap, you know, look at look at what we did with that that small idea from that conversation. You know, we have D&D and now we have Warhammer. And, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this was a conversation about, you know, what if we just added some dragons or what if we added some magic it's i mean that that is the magic of real life in that sense it's amazing what can happen um you know you go down the road and you see all these these amazing things um and it, it's uh if you get back to the cartoon which which what i would say would be like an introduction for a lot of people um to D to these concepts because that was the first you know animated series that was playing on tv um that was shortly followed by, uh, I mean, you mentioned Satanic Panic. That was shortly followed by one of Tom Hanks's first roles in a series called Mazes and Monsters. Yeah. Which was to warn people against the dangers of playing D&D. And the character, one of the main characters, ends up having some sort of like mental break and believing that he is his, his uh, D&D character. Um, I didn't yeah. go much further on that. Really. I was just like, wow, yeah. Tom Hanks, really? That's what, that's what you got your start on. Why? Why? Yeah. There's Tom a, Hanks? there's a meme. There's a meme, a popular meme where you have Tom Hanks, you know, he's, it's, it's at the end of the movie and he's, it's like, he's lost his identity and he thinks he's the character from D and D. Um, it's a, it's a terrible movie <laughs> and Tom Hanks acting is questionable at best in it, uh, but he's young, you know, uh, it was his first big, big role. But yeah, there's a meme where you see Tom Hanks almost crying and pleading. Um, so that's where that image is from. Yeah, that's cool. <clears throat> it's from the end of that movie. But yeah, that movie predates the the cartoon. I just Googled the cartoon oh, it was earlier than I thought. Cartoon was 83 and the movie was 82. I, I thought the cartoon was a little bit later. So, um, so yeah, and that, that, movie that was sort of the depths of satanic panic that was sort of um coinciding with uh not to be political but in the u.s you had you know the conservative movement surrounding you know ronald reagan's election and of course nancy reagan she had this big sort of kids first policy that she was pushing which isn't isn't a, isn't a bad isn't a bad um uh concept of course you know to to you know think this sort of you know, it's in, in The Simpsons, they, they, they have that that uh, reverend's wife, you know, always saying, oh, please, someone think of the children. This was sort of very Nancy Reagan-esque because she had all kinds of these, these speeches and policies that were about, you know, making kids wholesome, you know, so very much against video games, very much against music, very much against violence on television, you know, very much against, um, you know, anything that was, you know, considered not, you know, you know, American apple pie traditional values. And so, yeah, of course, D&D um, having all of its sort of occult content um, 
was very much targeted by that sort of bandwagon movement in the early 80s. Yeah, and and that that blows up and and it culminates in a pair of teen suicides, unfortunately, uh, around that time. Uh, and their parents, you know, when they you know go into their rooms and start looking into their lives, they're both uh, very avid D and D players, and they join forces with the local church, and they actually head up one of the first like anti D and D groups, which they didn't they didn't really go very far on the acronym. It's called Bad which literally stood mm-hmm. for bothered by D&D and <laughs> they took up their, their their own campaign if you will uh, against D&D um, I have here in my notes written they failed D&D rules woot woot <laughs> um, but they it's unfortunate that you know like yes these two teenagers did uh take their lives and you can you can understand that there's a reaction there um but obviously it's it's a misguided one and with the assistance of the church and their you know their reach they they obviously have some influence which is results of you know mazes and monsters and you know the you know a lot of people remember satanic panic and you know even in the states there's no conclusive proof of satanic panic or any like actual crimes committed in the, the name of satan let alone D um and you know it, it's also something that happened that like you know people say history repeats itself because in in my former episode on scooby-doo um this this happened in the 60s before D even existed it was after mm-hmm. the the kennedy assassinations um not just jfk but um our rfj there one of his brothers uh was a senator yeah, robert Yes, exactly, Robert. Um, and he was, again, very much like Nancy Reagan, um, very outspoken on the programming for, tele- for television at the time. And they took aim, I mean, they took aim at like the action adventures of Superman. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was fantastic, at the time it was all- Any fantastical it, elements it, exactly. was sort of targeted. And it was It was always, they in their their framing devices, it was, it was violence. And they, at the time they're, you know, they were, again, they're reacting to assassinations and the, the way they put it then was, you know, you put kids in front of the TV and they watch this fantasy violence and they're gonna grow up to commit violence. and. So in the case of D&D, it was you allow these kids, these teenagers to play D&D and they're going to commit suicide. Um, So it's all, I mean, history repeats itself and it's all, you know, some tragic action results in some moral panic is what is what they what they refer to it as now. Um, That's what satanic panic was. Yeah. And D&D as a game and and as a concept, I mean, I'm not going to get into the history of of why you know, teens and Gen Xers specifically felt disenfranchised because this was a whole uh, result of, um, of you know, recessions in the 80s and, and 70s and um, sort of a, especially in the United States, you know, we're Canadian. So it was a little bit different for us. Uh, we didn't really have this kind of, um, the same kind of issues the US had, but especially after, you know, the war in Vietnam and, um and sort of trouble they had, uh, you know, in the 1970s, the U.S. had sort of this collective, um, you know, depressive state where the whole country kind of collectively felt almost like a shame, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's all there's all kinds of events that led to this, you know, and you can see it in the music and you can see it in their movies, their cultures, everything. It was very dark and kind of bleak uh, from a pop culture perspective in the 1970s. I mean, you look at the movies before, you know, the blockbuster movie innovation in the 1970s. 
look at all the movies that came out, you know, between, you know, 1970 and 1976, 77. They were very, I mean, they're good movies, but they're not exactly uplifting. They're not exactly, you know, it's like you don't watch a movie and you escape from it. You're watching a movie like, I don't know, Kramer versus Kramer. And you're leaving the theater in tears thinking, oh, my God, this is that's so it's it's a great movie, but it's a real downer. Mm -hmm. And you have this whole generation of kids that kind of felt disenfranchised and it's reflected in their music. You know, the, the type of music, the type of movies, you know, from, you know, the rise in, in, in fantastical movies and, and sort of counterculture movies. Uh, and, and D&D has always been a game that appealed to, to people that, you know, wanted a certain level of escapism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, nowadays, it's really gone mainstream, so it's not necessarily the case anymore. Although, I think I read somewhere that D&D has the highest representation of the lgbtq community it's something like 40 percent of players or, or some ridiculous number like this like it's a huge percentage um of the players uh identify you know in that community and so you can see that you have so you can see even nowadays even with it being very mainstream um there's a lot of people that uh either from you know having trouble at home or not feeling accepted in school or whatever they gravitate to this kind of game you know, instead of going and playing football, you know, maybe they're they're playing, you know, Magic the Gathering, they're playing D&D, mm-hmm. they're, they're mm-hmm. maybe withdrawing more into computer games. But more than any of those other properties, you know, a, a role-playing game like D&D lets you kind of assume the role you want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you feel weak, you're bullied, you know, you're going to go and be whatever, a, a half-orc barbarian, and you're going to kick some butt. You know, and, and so when you go back to this idea of satanic panic and kids you know unfortunately you know ending their lives you know it's like parents of course they don't they want to look for something to blame and for them D was the thing to blame however D was an outlet you know it may have been more of a warning sign that why does your kid want to withdraw into this game i mean any game that someone spends eight hours a day playing is a warning sign that they're probably escaping from something, yeah. whether it's a video game or, 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 or D and D or whatever. So if D and D is, you know, at the time in the 1980s, if parents are sitting there and they see this game taking over their kids' lives, it's the only thing they talk about. It's the only thing they read. It's the only thing they do with their friends. You know, you should be having a conversation with your child, trying to figure out why they need this outlet. And of course, yeah. you know, we see that in violence and music, video games, and movies, you know, you know, violence in, in movies doesn't cause violence with people. However, if you're predisposed to violence, you might be attracted to, to that violent movie. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's a chicken and egg here, you know, chicken or the egg. And in the case of D&D, uh, you know, with, with such a large percentage of players, um, you know, identifying that they're playing, you know, for empowerment or for inclusion or, um, you know, as an escape, the question really should be, why aren't they feeling included uh, or why are they feeling the need to escape from their regular life? And what I always thought, too, like if you're if you're worried about, you know, your your child, your your friend, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they're becoming obsessive about a certain topic or even a, a, a child, you know, they're reading all about D&D, they're talking all about D&D and they're playing it with their friends. I would take a step back and be like, hey, wait, but they're reading they're being social and they're super excited about something to the point where they're like, they're doing like extra 
basically homework on on this topic. I would I always never understood um, why they wouldn't try to focus that and funnel it into a more broader focus uh, instead of being so uh, negative about just the topic matter. Now and, and and on the on the opposite side of that, when you're t- when you're dealing with such you know heavy topics as as you know people you know ending their lives, um, if you know that's what D that's what I always thought D and D was was kind of the ultimate um you know advocate helper because instead of retreating into your bedroom by yourself and closing the door and surrounding yourself with negativity and drowning in those emotions you could sit around a table with other people that might you know be identifying or having those same issues and you could communicate with them and you could get to know them and then over time you know you pull yourself out of that that issue and you know your circumstances change from year to year so i always thought you know demonizing um the game or this medium that kind of brought people together and to this day it's considered you know especially to this day in in these days it's considered such a meeting place and you know it's they have designated safe zones safe games um for you know certain parties that might have uh you know uh, you know, stressors or, you know, traumatic experience in their lives. And you want to avoid, you know, bring up those, you know, those topics and discussion. So they have a quote, safe games in that sense. So I always, I always questioned why you would want to take that away from, like you said, a child that feels already bullied or isolated. And then you're going to take away the one thing that gives them, you know, satisfaction and, you know, enjoyment and connection to the outside world where they feel, you know, comfortable enough to role play. Because if anybody hasn't played D&D, you got to be comfortable speaking in this first person. And, you know, like I raise my axe and, you know, swing it, you can feel a bit out of your comfort zone at first, especially if you're playing with new friends or people that you haven't met before. And one of my one of the things that I've enjoyed the most is getting out of that comfort zone and then rediscovering a new comfort zone with the new members of well, you know, like my my campaign party now. And that that was you know pure enjoyment for me. And it's one of the things that you know brings me back to the D and D table over and over again. And it's the thing that. I think that is missing from, you know, even video games or, or, you know, any, any source of entertainment. It's that, that group, that communal sense. It's why, you know, board games are so fun. It's why people still play Monopoly and Snakes and Ladders. It's because you have to sit around a table with other people that want to play Snakes and Ladders or D&D. And it's just like the pinnacle of all of these things that, you know, are really, are really good in my opinion. Yeah, um, yeah, and what's what I find is great nowadays is is how accepted it is. Uh, you know, when I when I was growing up, um, I went through a bunch of different RPG games, and probably the one I played the most as a as a teenager was this game by Palladium Games called Rifts, and it's this sci-fi. So Palladium Games, although they're they're quite underground, and I'm, I'm not even sure if they're really around anymore. Um, but at the time, they were one of the major competitors to, to, to D&D in terms of the, you know, in the, in the, in the pen and paper area. And so uh, Palladium Games had a, a fantasy RPG and they had their futuristic RPG, which was called Rifts. And it was this sort of post-apocalyptic growing into a extra dimensional space, you know, adventure. So you, you had sort of the space version, you had the post-apocalyptic version. 
anyways, we played a lot of this game, Riffs. Um, and we played it for years. And it was, you know, it's not something that when I was in high school, you could talk about. You know, I couldn't say which which people in high school played D&D or which ones played Riffs or, or whatever, because you had to keep that, like, top secret. <laughs> you had to keep it completely locked up. Uh, I had lots of friends who I knew played things like Magic the Gathering and, and, and maybe, the, you know, the Star Wars collectible card game or, or Star Trek, which was popular at the time. Uh, maybe even people who played things like Battletech. And, of course, I played Warhammer in high school, so I had those friends. And Warhammer was a little bit more acceptable. I don't know why. Because it was just, as far as, like, geekiness goes, it was it was on the same level as any pen and paper RPG. But pen and paper RPG in the 90s, that was almost considered the absolute pinnacle of being a nerd or a geek. And it was absolutely not socially acceptable in high school. I had a girlfriend, and we dated for years and I never told her that, you know, on Friday nights or Saturday nights, I'd go to my friend's house and we would play riffs. You know, we'd play this this RPG. Uh, and she would always ask, like, what do you guys do Saturday night? Every Saturday night, you know, you go to your friend Mike's house. You're just hammering What is it that you do there? And I'd say, oh, you know, we just play video games. We just hang out. We talk. And, you know, fine. But I remember there being conflict about that because... <laughs> Because she would she she would find it weird that I had this scheduled night that every night and it was on a schedule because mm -hmm. all the different people from the group, of course, you're playing an RPG. Everyone has to be there. You know, we all had to agree on it on a time and, and date and create a schedule. And it was, you know, Friday night or Saturday night. And for her, she felt left out because it's like I wasn't including her. And she would also want to come over because she knew these people, too. So she'd say, oh, well, why don't I come over to Mike's house? And I'd have to make excuses like, well, you can't, you know, this, that, da, 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 da. you know, <laughs> and it's funny thinking back retrospectively, because nowadays it's so accepted sort of in pop culture. Um, uh, and and, and it's, it's sort of just a term everyone knows that I don't think I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone in high school would be considered uh like far out there for playing a pen and paper rpg and, and like i said in the 90s like i don't even know how we we formed groups because it's like you had to use code words <laughs> you know you couldn't you couldn't mention that i wasn't i wasn't sort of an outcast in high school i wasn't you know mr popular either i i sort of floated between groups but if i advertised that i played a pen and paper you know rpg i was always an athlete so i always had you know the athletic friends the whatever the the quote-unquote jocks and, and stuff like this and then I also floated into that more um, geeky side, you know, playing things like Magic the Gathering and, and Warhammer. And even if I wasn't actively playing, I'd go and hang out with those people, you know, at lunchtime. That's usually where I, where I spent my time with was with, you know, the, the groups of people playing these types of games. And I wouldn't necessarily actively play, but I would watch and, you know, converse with them. Um, I always really enjoyed those types of properties. But I could then turn around and, and go to my soccer <laughs> friends and say, hey, by the way, uh, you know. Yeah. So, it, yeah uh, sorry. It's okay. Go ahead. Yeah, it started. It definitely started changing by the early 2000s already. Um, by the time I, I remember not so much D&D, &D, but uh, trading card games like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Ma even Magic, um, though that was a bit, you know, above our uh, above our heads um, in the early 2000s but it became very popular in school um, 
I, I constantly remember like the most popular thing would be Pokemon and for half the year uh, you'd be bringing your Pokemon cards in and on recess and on lunch you'd just be you'd just be throwing down your Pokemon cards and, and trading and, and playing and then historically what would always happen is that somewhere about halfway through the year somebody would get into a fight over it someone's card would get <laughs> stolen and then no more Pokemon cards and then, <laughs> and then literally the next like it was a cycle of like what was going to be the most popular thing how long was it going to last before somebody had a fight over it and how quickly was it going to get banned from school so like i can go like pokemon cards Yu-Gi-Oh, beyblade bionicles like all the way up until like sixth grade digimon digivices um you know you had to you had the two i mean digivices were basically tamagotchis that were just designed mm -hmm. to look like a digivice but what was cool is that you could click them together at the top and you could actually do a battle sequence um mm -hmm. so you needed people to play with and as it got pushed out of school every year well then it just meant like okay who's house are we going over to play pokemon or who has house are we going to go over to play Yu-Gi-Oh? and and there was there was girls like there was you know other girls in our class that had their pokemon deck or their Yu-Gi-Oh deck or they had their beyblade and there was never any you know hate or like oh you're a girl you can't play uh you know you can't spin a beyblade with us you know like you know maybe she had the the best beyblade dome or whatever it was that needed to be uh set mm -hmm. up and that was that was it so and then when we go into high school there was just this kind of like idea that like no one had really changed we're 12 years old going on 13 and it was like well all right well we still like Yu-Gi-Oh and and all of these things and we're just gonna wear it on our sleeve and that was it and then as we got older mm -hmm. we just you saw the younger grades continuing to do this and it was like by that time the Big Bang Theory is on TV and they're playing D&D &D at 8 p.m on ABC you know so things had things had quickly yeah. changed we're on a bit of a segue here from the actual D&D topic, but uh, <laughs> when I was, happens. <laughs> it's sort of related because, you know, Magic the Gathering was just ghosts, you know, they, they acquired, you know, the property back in, I don't know what it was, 98, 99. Um, but uh, when I was in elementary school, it, I'm, I don't remember if it was grade five we started. I think it was towards the tailing end of grade five was when the um, uh, Magic the Gathering, the revised edition came out, which was really the first like big commercial release of magic the gathering because they had had alpha beta and unlimited uh with a couple of expansions like the dark and um uh i i, don't, I can't remember all of them but anyways they the first big commercial release of magic the gathering was the revised edition which was considered third edition even though it, it was already fourth edition but we called it third edition um and every boy, no girls, of course, but every boy in my, you know, grade six class played Magic the Gathering. Every single one of us had a deck and we played it every recess. If we're at, you know, school for lunchtime, we played it at lunchtime. It was hugely popular and every kid, you know, from the most popular to the least popular played Magic the Gathering. Okay. Fast forward one year till we go to high school, grade seven. And... <laughs> If you played Magic the Gathering, you were a pariah. Like, that was social suicide. And it's so funny because for you, you had the experience that you guys just continued to play it and you yeah. wore it on your sleeve. For us, you, you finished the last day of grade six, whatever it was, June 23rd, and you're playing Magic the Gathering. Two months later, you start high school. And if you even say the words, 
you were a pariah. The funny thing is that every boy in the school, you know, in grade seven, had his magic cards at home. Yeah. Probably half of them still played it. You know, this was a case of everyone's still doing it, but no one talks about it. And then how do you make the connections, um, uh, uh, you know, those friendships? It's like, it's like I said, it's almost like you had to use secret words, secret codes. My best friend, one of my best friends, um, uh, well, it, it's funny. It's a funny story, actually. I had this friend. His name's Elias. And he, uh, we met in grade seven. And he was a bit of an awkward kid. Um, he was, he wasn't from Canada. Uh, he was from Switzerland. And there was a bit of a language barrier. I think he'd come over in grade five or six. And uh, I met him in, in grade seven. Uh, and he was a bit of a weird kid, and he didn't. He was unashamed about his interests. He loved Star Wars. He loved D and D. You know, he loved anything fantastical. You know, books, you know, fantasy books, science fiction books, whatever it was. Um, and he would sit there drawing them in class, and it's like Star Wars as a property. Star Wars. When I was in grade seven, you couldn't you couldn't like anything fantastical. It was automatic social suicide. And I remember I, I got you know through whatever. Um, sort of luck of the draw. I got sat beside him, and I was like, "Oh, great! This weird, weird guy, you know, with his like wolf sweatshirts and his long hair. You know, he looked like he looked like a nineteen eighties rocker, and that was not cool in whatever it was nineteen ninety five. And uh, I sat beside him, and he was drawing Star Wars, these Star Wars pictures, and I would doodle Star Wars pictures too. So I was doodling. And he looked over and he, he asked me, oh, you like Star Wars? And I'm doing like an Elias accent here. And I, I looked at him and of course being defensive, I was like, yeah, you know? And and then he was like, oh, he's like, that's cool. And then we were just best friends. Like it was, that was it. He was, it was yeah. like he had latched himself onto me. Now we were just friends because we shared this common interest. Uh, and, and my other friend, Mike, who Elias introduced us, the, it's the exact same circumstance. Mike was reading a book in a hallway in high school and Elias approached him and that book was Star Wars and Elias said oh what are you reading uh, you like Star Wars and Mike being defensive of course because people would give you a crap for liking something like Star Wars um, you know he he defensively said yeah what's it to you or, or something similar and Elias said oh no uh, I like it too and bam friends and so that's that's sort of how you had to make these connections you wanted to play a D game of D&D in high school oh my god it, you would have to you would have to like, you would have to spy on people to try and figure it out because <laughs> no one was advertising that, you know. Yeah, so. it's so so different. Why just maybe not like ten years of of a of a span? Because I, I think back to the hallways of school and they're just dotted with kids sitting at their lockers in in semicircles and they're doing whatever have you magic the gathering uh there you know we used to i remember when you didn't when when they banned Yu-Gi-Oh cards um at the time we basically had memorized all of the attack and defense and and the basic idea of Yu-Gi-Oh. so we would draw out our cards on pieces of paper and like on like loose leaf and we would recreate our decks at school so that we could have like Yu-Gi-Oh battles with these like stack of like cut out square loose leaf paper and and we were we were a bit resourceful and it just yeah it was just uh for me those are great memories it's unfortunate um 
I mean, I, it seems like you you did well. You were able to find friends, but I, I think in in the grand scheme of things, it's unfortunate if there is the the fourth individual that maybe didn't see you guys doodling Star Wars, who had to go and and you know struggle. So it's it's very nice and and you know um, encouraging to see how big it's begun become. And if that's the the Marvel effect, the Disney effect, the the I don't know, the internet or just maybe it's, you know, people my age and and in between and even your age who just decided that, you know, it's time to stop hiding away in the back rooms of, of stores and basements and just kind of embrace it and let the world kind of deal with it. And I think we, we won in that regard because like (laughs) we've, we've taken back um, the hallways and, I mean, they televise, you know, like video games on ESPN nowadays. Like you have esports, and 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 you know, people used to say like, "Oh, you're going to play video games, you're not going to go anywhere in life." And now you could pull in, you know, a living salary on Twitch. Uh, I mean, you can even do that playing D and D. Look at the guys at Critical mm-hmm. Role, and and uh, I'm I'm blanking on one of them. It's the Adventure Adventure something. I have it like right behind me adventure zone the adventure zone yeah yeah they adapted that into a comic book they have you know they have so many different sources like revenue sources now it's it's quite amazing what it came from and i mean there's movies too uh we haven't even talked about I mean, we haven't talked about the amazing D movie from 2000 which i watched yeah. last night um <laughs> i couldn't uh, i couldn't bring myself to rewatch it i i saw it 20 years ago and it like it was hugely disappointing at the time um maybe maybe you can give a better synopsis because i can't yeah. really remember it i've okay. lost it from my collective memory so I mean, the director is—he uh, was like very tenacious. Uh, I mean, Courtney Solomon—he's uh, only directed three movies. I, I want to watch the other two because if I look at the IMDb rating, they all like his first, like the D and D movie is like three out of ten stars. His next movie is five out of ten stars, and then his next movie is like six and a half out of ten stars. Well, I'm like, all right, well he's learning upward at least. He <laughs> <laughs> so, learned, learned something along yeah, the way. Yeah, exactly. He only directed. He's produced quite a bit of movies though he went into more of a uh, producer role but he was he he understood D. he had a background in like you know playing D games and he really set out to create something um and i arguably it's not i mean i've watched some terrible fantasy movies um i will say that like the prince of persia movie was better than the D movie um but that that I mean, might be more of a product of like they just had better graphics uh by the time they were making the prince of persia movie um but the the practical effects in the D movie were very good the set pieces the costume design uh it was very good jeremy irons was just uh chewing up the scenery which he's completely admitted to that he just took it for the paycheck and limited time uh commitment so he just had a blast with what he was given and he was just like giving it his all trying different techniques during different parts of the movie which you can clearly see when you watch it you're like he's like it's a completely different character in two different scenes. Um, the funniest part of that movie is Damador is wearing Ichiban for men. 
the lipstick from Friends because it's the same shade of blue. If you watch that commercial from whatever season it was of, of Friends when Joey shows them the tape of his commercial from Japan and it's like, oh, lipstick for me. It's the same shade of blue. <laughs> like I was dying through the whole movie. And apparently they tried to like retroactively justify that in a D&D uh, like a, a subsequent D&D edition release they introduced blue lips from a type of uh, like drug addiction and people said that that was them trying to like retroactively justify this guy's appearance in the movie uh, yeah it was it was a huge flop that movie and oh yeah, yeah I, I I mean you could do a whole episode on its on its production and 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 what went wrong where uh but yeah it was it was a mess um i i think that it was just trying to jump on that sort of fantasy revival uh period you know um trying to get in there before lord of the rings or you know harry potter kind of took things over the, uh, and it, it really it really fell short to a point that was the studio aspect but what i said about courtney solomon he was trying to develop this movie for 10 years he was running around between studios getting getting uh rejected i forget the gentleman's name but uh they he donated 30 million dollars to the production and it became like the most uh the most expensive um independent film until they got their new line cinema um funding but i mean mm -hmm. it had a budget of 45 million it made 33 3.8 at the box office somehow they made a sequel to this movie that they put another 12 million dollars up for this sequel that was its total budget it made 1.7 million at the box office like they've just yeah well the first one lost so much money <laughs> the first one was at least a theatrical release so they probably cut even and, and it's not as much of a flop as i thought if it if it made 75 percent back yeah um, yeah when you think you know, of that's not that's not a decent stuff too yeah, that's not a backbreaking failure, but yeah, it was not received well. And no. it kind of reminds me a little bit of the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s was sort of the try-hard period for, for a lot of properties. They were trying to, they were trying to push boundaries. They were trying to make things cool, you know, air quotations, cool, uh, and trying to appeal to, you know, different demographics. And um, instead of just, you know, appealing to their actual core fans and letting them sort of push their product. So. And it was this, I, this, I, I, excuse me, I don't know if it's lack of experience um, with adapting these fantasy properties, but it was this age old question of like, how do you introduce people to the D and D world who don't understand D and D, but then at the same time, respect the fans and, clearly with like nowadays with star wars and marvel and and having all of these different properties and and even dc um they figured that out that like you don't need to take half the movie setting up everything just let the movie speak for itself and people will figure that out which they attempted to do in the DD movie but they just mm -hmm. it's like it was an attempt it was a valid attempt but they missed the mark by a long shot and the movie's plot if you can call it a plot um it doesn't really follow anything you're going from scene to scene just kind of question marking like hey why are, why are we here now and mm -hmm. the they arguably the stuff that you needed to see and wanted to see they just skipped over it 
uh, by having it happen off screen and then having the two main characters come back and just recap what happened off screen. I'm like, well, that's not a good way to tell like to tell a story. You can't skip a huge part of like they skipped who they got the quest from, what the quest mm-hmm. is supposed to be, and where they're going, and then they just told you by like just telling you the plot points, like uh, exposition dump. Yeah, the, it, like, you, it makes you wonder. <laughs> it makes you wonder what was lost in editing. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, I'm sure that probably the writers had written something maybe it got shot maybe it didn't get shot but it definitely didn't make it to the final version yeah but you know as a property and you know i'll i'll wait to see the new D movie uh you know i'll reserve my judgment for when it comes out uh, i won't get too excited about it because I, i've just been burned too many times <laughs> by properties but the problem with D, it reminds me of the final fantasy movie the one from i don't know 2001 or whatever it was spirits within and you know people's biggest complaint about that movie is it has nothing to do with final fantasy but what it, you know what is final fantasy what is dnd it's not it's not there's no story to dnd you know at most you have a collection of different campaign settings you know with their sort of different history but there's no narrative to dnd mm-hmm. you know there's no set story um you can carve out from all the different campaign books and all this you can carve out I guess, adventures and sort of a collective story of, you know, Faroon or Greyhawk or uh, Ravenloft or whatever your campaign setting is, you know, the official ones. But those don't represent an actual story like a like like Lord of the Rings has a story. It's a book, you know, and Mm -hmm. that book has all of the things necessary to craft a story, you know, you know, an antagonist, you know, a protagonist, you have supporting characters, you have locations, all this. Whereas D&D is just a blank canvas. So when you say you're making a D&D movie, just like when you say you're making a Final Fantasy movie, there, there's no, collect, you know, Final Fantasy, the games are disjointed. They have nothing to do with each other. So if you say you're making a movie, okay, well, specifically, what is that movie going to be about? If you're making D&D movies, specifically, what? What is the setting? Mm-hmm. You know, is it Dragonlance? Is it Greyhawk? Is it, is it you know, Forgotten Realms? What is it? Who knows? And on top of that, all of those campaign settings have their own lore and, and, and monsters are even, are, are even different, right, in those campaign settings. Nowadays, 5th edition, although they've released a little bit of supplementary books in different campaign settings, it's specifically Forgotten Realms. Uh, and so when you buy the monsters book for D and D fifth edition, it's for it's the it's a monsters book for Forgotten Realms, and the monster descriptions and all of this is for that campaign setting. You know, if you had a specifically Greyhawk um, monsters book, you know, Greyhawk being the campaign setting for you know the original D and D, the monsters are different. They have different you know for the most part they're the same, but their history is different. How they act is different. You know, uh, they're they're affiliations are different things like this so mm-hmm. um yeah it makes it really hard to, to to make a dungeons and dragons movie because essentially you're just making a generic fantasy movie mm-hmm. and everything goes because D is a blank canvas i mean they had the same the same problem you mentioned the final fantasy movie that made me think of the world of warcraft uh, movie that they attempted to make it basically follows the same pitfalls um i i have optimism for the new D movie based on what uh what amazon prime was able to develop with uh, vox machina and 
I think people have kind of figured it out. Like I said, with with uh, the Adventure Zone, um, the uh, the graphic novel that I have over my shoulder, um, they've kind of figured out that the best D and D story is like kind of a D and D story that has been played. They, the Adventure Zone they adapted an actual campaign into this graphic novel. Somebody sat down, listened to their cam- their recording of their campaign, and then depicted it. Um, which is very much the feeling you get from the the animated series Vox Machina. Um, and they introduce all these very good D and D characters, and they feel as if they're being played. Um, you know, some of them are stupid. They 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 act you know very according to their roles. And if that's an example of what people have learned about D and D, then I'm hopeful that from the trailer and and I mean it's a good cast that they've kind of picked up on that and they've figured it out that like okay so it needs to be like a flushed out story um, that that makes sense in this D&D world. And then hopefully the the world, the, the world design uh, is re- something recognizable um, to fans. That that's my hope. Uh, you, you know, you have those. I mean, even in the trailer, uh, I had that m- moment because uh, we haven't even talked about our, our D&D campaigns. I'm not sure if we'll have time uh, to talk about our D&D campaigns, but uh, Cam is actually the DM for our for my current D&D group. And uh, in our previous campaign, uh, we faced off against an owlbear. And in the trailer the, for the new movie with Chris Pine, <laughs> they're like, what is that? And he's like, it's an owl bear. And I'm just like, I'm just pointing at the screen. It's that meme from with Leonardo DiCaprio. And I'm like, I know what that is. I've, I've faced <laughs> off against an owl bear. And I mean, I get that reference. Let's let's face it. It's 2022. The the this owl bear looks absolutely amazing. Uh, so I have I have hope in my heart that we're gonna actually get something that's like you're gonna walk out of it and it's gonna be like damn that was a good D and D movie. Um, at the yeah. worst, it'll be like damn that was a decent D and D movie that's been better than any of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, you have to assume. You have to assume. I think their it's biggest challenge in <laughs> representing D and D in media is that there's so many directions you can go, and you want to sort of stick to a narrative. You know, if you're having a, you know, sort of a classic high fantasy D&D game or, sorry, movie or media or whatever, whatever it is you're doing, you want to kind of stick to um, a consistent narrative. You know, if you're out in the in the in the woods and you're traveling cross country, you're going into dungeons, you have to kind of have monsters that make sense. My only concern with the D&D movie is that they're going to throw too much at the screen because it doesn't make sense to have an encounter with an owlbear and then the next encounter you know, your, your characters are facing is something more, you know, ethereal, like, I don't know, a banshee. And then after that, you're going to, um, you know, these, these sort of, uh, you know, dark, uh, enemies, things like a mind flayer or something Mm -hmm, like this, which, mm -hmm. which becomes a little bit more horror, you know, um, you know, stick to, stick to a type of fantasy and just sort of ride that out. Don't just throw sort of random stuff. You know, if you, if you have a, an overarching villain, something that's recognizable, you know, a really big threat, something like, you know, to name drop something like Vecna, for instance, which is this, this classic EB villain that's been around since first edition. Uh, you know, and of, and of course, you know, like, I don't even know if most people know what Vecna is. They, they just remember <laughs> it from, from uh, Stranger Things, you know? Um, but yeah, these sort of elder gods or these, these master uh, enemies uh, I, I can't remember all their names, but yeah, you 
And and what's interesting too is that the the concept in Stranger Things is that these uh, these bad guys aren't technically Vecna. They're that that's no. what the main cast is using as a as a framing device, right? They're attributing these names to these otherworldly type creatures because that's how they're making sense of it. So mm-hmm. arguably. Uh, they could make a D and D movie, and they could they could use a Vecna character, and it would be more accurate to the the source material in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. Which is an interesting, which is an interesting thing that I'm not sure if a lot of people even have made that realization <laughs> when watching Stranger Things. That like, okay, that's you realize that that's not Vecna, right? Like that's that's the end. That's the like the final point is that it's an interpretation through the eyes of the character. Uh, which is just an interesting, interesting part of it. Yeah, maybe you know we we've gone on so many tangents um, in this conversation. Maybe it'd be worth it to have sort of a follow up, a follow up uh, episode. Maybe getting more into the rules and the actual game itself. But they released a Stranger Things, you know, box set for for D and D Fifth Edition, <clears throat> where you're essentially playing the campaign of the kids although it's it's sort of intermixed with the actual events of stranger things and okay. i i took a portion of that box set in in the first campaign we played if you recall and what's funny is that they kept the name from stranger things demigorgon oh, okay. to, to, to be the the creature from stranger things but demigorgon is is a monster in D, and it's it's like a like a, a an end game kind of monster. Oh, okay. I don't know what its CR rating is, its challenge rating is, but it's something like challenge rating seventeen. It's it, you know your party level should be like twelfth or fifteenth level to be oh, fighting wow. something like okay. Gorgon. <laughs> so as a starter campaign to D and D, your your first, second, third level playing this this uh, this adventure, right? This published adventure, right. and they have Demigorgon, but they're they're meaning it to mean the the monster from Stranger Things, right? So there's like, like an R rating of two now. or three, yeah. So now there's two Demigorgons. Which right. one? You have the Stranger Thing Demigorgon, <laughs> or you have the actual Demigorgon, which is this like abyssal demon with two heads that's you know thirty feet high. Um, yeah, they're very, they're very much different things. Which happens in in so many franchises. Once you have longevity, there's there's remaster, not remasters, but retcons and different versions. And I mean, you can talk about, uh, I mean, RoboCop, uh, Terminator. There's always going to be like, well, which version are you talking about? Because there's clearly yeah. differences in in both. Uh, you have to be mm-hmm. more specific as time goes on. So now. Uh, if you're hosting a D&D group, you're going to have to specify like OG Demigorgons or Shrink <laughs> Demigorgons because if it's yeah, higher, you know, we're good. <laughs> as a DM, I, I try to, I, I don't, I try not to name drop. So I don't know if you notice that as a player. I don't tend to just outright say what the monster is. I try to just describe them. You know? Right. Which so is, which when we good. played that, yeah, because otherwise... I mean, how would your character know what their official name is? Yeah. Uh, if you roll, if you roll history arcana or whatever, then yeah, I might tell you you recognize it. And its name is this. But when we played that original campaign, that Stranger Things campaign, I don't think I ever referenced the name of the creature you guys were fighting. No. You encountered it a couple of times as sort of a big bad that was chasing you through the the upside down. You know, when you guys were in the upside down. Oh yeah. And, oh, I uh, never put any of that together. 
<laughs> <laughs> we were in the whole other realm and it was like a dog creature wow wow yeah okay yeah exactly so now i can say so, I, played the, uh, I played a stranger things campaign yeah so yeah i don't know if you want to take a look at the the actual adventure it, it's on my D beyond account you have access to the source uh the source books there the adventure books but yeah essentially that's what the first you know going back to the, the first campaign after you guys um did that first adventure with the brewery you went up into the woods and 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 that's where the sort of the stranger things campaign started so we did it uh start to end and of course i as i usually do when i i very loosely follow the adventure mm -hmm. settings um to modify names and places but essentially we followed that so if you if you read through that adventure you'll see it and it, it's a pretty good adventure for starting for starting levels but yeah you guys went you went through the portal you went to the upside down um that's when you guys i almost, that's when almost died right that's when i got my my like two levels of exhaustion i think so yeah because you incurred exhaustion from being yeah. the upside down because you guys were constantly having this poison effect and and yeah it yeah. and yeah it's it, it was a great it was yeah. a great little adventure yeah that was uh that's that's good to know that's good to know <laughs> Uh, we'll definitely have to do uh, a supplemental episode. Uh, maybe we can even run through um, the high points of that campaign, and you could uh, you could give your insight to what the actual the overarching campaign. So for for the listeners, we had an original campaign that was busted up because of pandemic, and unfortunately, to to my like eternal sadness we're not going to be able to return to that campaign uh unless we can find some higher level characters to join and in person i, I think it's it's uh it's put to rest we've started on a new campaign with new characters um but we had gotten so far in in like over a year of of gathering and and we were getting like like five, level five i believe so like we were getting stronger and mm -hmm. more confident and we had put together even some like rping stuff we had like we were working on a town making investments um it was getting really uh really integrated we're well, not integrated uh what's the word i'm looking for layered i guess yeah it was becoming it was becoming a really layered story uh so it's just it's it's interesting to know that we had done a whole portion of of a stranger things camp uh stranger things campaign inside our overarching campaign that i i had no idea about so that would be yeah we were uh we we followed we followed the stranger thing campaign and then i led you into uh another campaign once again i kind of loosely followed them which was uh uh, I don't remember the name of it. It's a 5e campaign. Um, something to do with the uh, giants taking over the earth. Um, oh, yeah. I remember we were we were dealing with giants, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember the, the campaign name. Uh, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah. I, I always try to, just to reduce my amount of work, I usually follow a campaign setting from a published campaign. And I pull things like maps and certain encounters out of it. And then I use it to fit my narrative. So if I have my own narrative or my own world, I just transplant them there. And that way, at least for dungeons and certain events like this, I don't have to spend hours creating a dungeon. I could just use the dungeon map from the adventure. I could loosely follow the story uh, while while injecting my own flavor into it. And uh, I mean, that's just sort of a that's sort of just a DM trick. You know, you pull you pull from all different kinds of 
of things. And even for our campaign now, I'm not going to tell you where I'm getting my source material from, but I don't want to but know. Once again, <laughs> combination of DM league published content. And I'm, there's even some first edition adventures mixed in there. Um, and you, you just sort of, when you've been DMing for a long time, uh, you, you, you find out sort of your favorite adventures, your favorite published adventures and your favorite encounters. And you kind of just cobble them together to fit your narrative. And, uh, how long yeah, did like, you, like, sorry. I was going to say, like you said, but maybe we can have a supplemental episode where we can discuss more the actual game and yeah. the game mechanics and the different editions. Uh, my question was going to be, how long had you played D&D for before you picked up the DM book and you sat down to lead your own your own campaign? So I, I honestly, I've always been more on the DM GM side. Okay. Um, like when I was a, when I was a young kid, and I told you about you know our adventures in HeroQuest. Um, I don't remember if I ever ran HeroQuest for my friends. I was young. I was playing with a, a friend across the street, my my older brother. So they were two or three years older than me, and so I was always you know the young kid. Um, I don't think I ever GM'd or DM'd with that group. However, as I got older, and I made my friends in high school, my friend Elias, my friend Mike. Uh, and, and and introducing me to Fred Nick, um, we we went over to my friend Mike's house and they were playing this game Rifts, as I mentioned before, mm -hmm. Platinum mm -hmm. Games RPG, and it, it was hosted actually by my friend Mike's older brother, and, okay. and that was very common. That you know, it's it's the older siblings that yeah. are handing it down. So his older brother um, Phil was running this campaign Rifts campaign for us. So I played there maybe just a couple of sessions, and then Phil, being you know four or five years older, he's quite a bit older was off doing his own thing. And then we were running our own campaign. I don't know who else took a stab at DMing, but shortly thereafter, I was, I, I, I wanted to, to be the game master. And so I was GMing that game and I GMed mostly, I was the primary GM for, I don't know, the next six, seven years. Wow. Um, and every once in a while we would take a lull in our main campaign and someone else would take a stab at, at DMing, GMing. And uh, I always enjoy being a player character, <laughs> but I always, I always end up being the DM. It's this sort of the natural pathway for me. Um, I enjoy the storytelling aspect. I have just as much fun DMing as playing. That's good. Sometimes it can get a little fatiguing because you have a lot of extra work to do as as the game master. Oh, for sure. But, I uh, yeah, I enjoy the process. So, um, but like a lot of people don't enjoy the process, and that that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I get just as much fun out of GMing or DMing as I do actually playing. And um, I mean, this is a question to stab in the dark. Uh, would you, I mean, technically the DM could, you could play a character if you wanted to introduce like an overarching bad guy um, that you could, you could pick like a, like a, like an elder God or a hero bad guy that you could technically RP the entire way. And that we like, maybe that's the one that's like leading us on this quest and that, you know, it's the end game. We're going to have to face off like the whole party against your character. That would be an interesting, um, mm -hmm. an interesting campaign. It, I mean, because I, I, you know, I know as a, as the DM, you are rolling for all of the enemies and the encounters that we have. But in the sense of actually having a character with stats, there would be that that idea. I'm curious if anyone has, has ever had a campaign. I assume that someone's had a campaign like that. Yeah, I've tried that in various games I've played where I've had a more active role with like an NPC character. And at the time, you know, when you're young, you don't consider these things as much. The problem is, is what when you're you're playing this balancing act as the DM is that you want the story 
you want to have a loose story. You want to have a loose framework with what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't want to detract from the player's experience. You want the players to lead that story. Okay. And a lot of people get this mistake when they want to be a DM or a GM that they have a story they want to tell. Okay. And they want players to participate in that story. Whereas, like, I don't, as a DM, I, I, I don't and I shouldn't have a very specific story to tell. I should have a general story lots of different pathways to sort of get to that end game and honestly probably it's going to be completely derailed by the players and that's <laughs> sort of the point of of uh D&D for our, our recent campaign we were playing I had a very I had I had structured probably the next three or four games okay. and honestly the first game was completely derailed and it was derailed in terms of how long it took to do things so what I thought would you know the the the, the players would take to do the first session you did about one one quarter of what i expected to happen okay and so that pushed everything else back but there's so like even i've been i'm a very experienced dm new players they'll do wacky things and you can't you can't sort of organize it in a way that you're going to execute a story you have right. to let the players find their own story that fits your narrative and so introducing an npc character you're kind of introducing an element that you're going to either willingly or, you know, subconsciously railroad the characters, right? Mm -hmm. By having an mm -hmm. input on the story, you have to let the players do their own thing. And there's another thing too, is you have to be really careful not to take away from the um, agency or the sense of immersion of the characters, right? Because if you introduce a character that's super cool, now players are going to sit there while you sit there rolling your super cool character doing super cool things and they're not doing super cool things right you know? they're not they're suddenly not the, the spotlight of the of the show right. and as a dm you don't want to be the spotlight ever you want the players to be the spotlight uh you just need to be you know you're the conductor conducting the orchestra um sort of i suppose although conductors tend to be in the spotlight but you understand the reference <laughs> yeah, no i understand it, yeah meaning no, that, that's very. It's a very good answer. I would, uh, as someone who's has participated in two real campaigns, and I'm I'm on my second campaign. Um, I I I I look to one day maybe host a DM position or, or be the, be in the DM position. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, year, years down the road. Um, so I, I I I hear where you're coming from, and I understand that. Um, it was it was uh, it's a very good answer to uh, to that that possibility of having your own character. Um, so yeah, as 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 a note to that, especially if you have a small amount of players, especially if you only have one or two players, it's almost necessary to have some sort of NPC. But it's better to introduce an NPC that maybe you uh, speak for, you decide for. However, maybe let the players control, you mm -hmm. know, in combat or mm -hmm. otherwise, because then at least they feel like they're contributing. Right. I mean and also, I I still wouldn't make it a you know heroic character. I wouldn't roll, you know, uh, whatever a human cleric. I'd probably take a monster from the monster manual uh, and take those stats, which are sort of watered down stats, and then maybe give them some buffs, give them some special equipment or some special abilities. So they're not quite on the same level as a hero. They're sort of like hero light. Um, but yeah, there's different ways of running the game. Um, right. You know, sometimes people, they exchange G GMs or DMs while they're playing, in which case everyone keeps a player character. So there's different ways of doing it. You know it's it's a really a free open game and and honestly there's thousands of ways people play 
you know, the same rule set, you know, in different ways. What, uh, what I'm thinking would be fun for, uh, listeners who I know there's, there's a handful of listeners that don't have any introduction to D and D. Uh, we could, uh, we could narrate just an encounter, just you and I, uh, you know, I have a character and I'm rolling against it and they could kind of get a sense for, you know, how you have to do that um, and what it entail what it entails. Um, that, mm-hmm. that might be interesting for a portion of an episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, I think this is where we're going to wrap up the episode. If you had any uh, final comments you wanted to make uh, towards D&D or anything upcoming, anything like that? No, uh, you know, I think that's good. Maybe uh, for anyone who's looking to get into D and D, you know, pick up one of the pick up one of the intro sets. I think there's about four or five of them for five E at the moment, you know, and you can find them bookstores, gaming stores. Um, you know, there, there's tons of there's tons of entry points in the game. So, you know, if you're thinking about it, do it. Um, and of course, you know, being more in the public. Uh, public uh collective consciousness these days there's a lot of game stores there's a lot of bars even for older people that host gaming sessions using D adventure league rules and and for me as an adult getting back into D, i didn't have anyone to play with and that's how i did it i, I went to a local game store and just joined the adventures league and showed up and uh sort of just introduced myself jumped in a game and away i went and that's how i started with fifth edition i hadn't played in maybe 10 years and uh, and to me that's a great entry point if you have access to uh, a local game store, they likely have Adventures League going, and uh, and they're always looking for players. If anyone's looking for uh, just a starting point, Ted Hobby Shop uh, sells a good selection of D and D stuff. They have uh, they do host um, some things. I'm not sure what they're hosting right now, um, but it's a great it's a great little store in uh, Point Claire. Uh, if you're local, you can check that out, and obviously just jump on Google to just look up your local uh local areas your library pub like uh like cam said pubs um anywhere there's they're always advertising almost every group is always looking for players or there's a new group looking to start and uh with the movies coming out i assume that it's just going to get bigger uh you know people are going to see the movie they're going to start talking about it they're going to want to try it so there's going to be groups popping up everywhere uh meetup mm-hmm. is a great one if uh if you haven't checked it out check out meetup if you're looking for a dm <clears throat> if you're looking for a dnd group uh you can drop me a line on uh on the nerd review uh, i'm on twitter the tiktok you can find me on discord uh the website the nerdreview.ca if you drop me a comment or send me an email uh maybe i have time to join a second campaign online we never know uh but with that that will end this conversation with nerds and i'm going to stop the recording here so this is the nerd and cam signing off thanks